SLP's podcast. I'm glad you're here. Remember what it was like back in graduate school, or maybe you still are in grad school. Today's episode is part of the CSD Graduate Students Journey Series. In this series, I talk to students who are either in school or fresh into their clinical fellowship year. We talk and cover real subjects like how to get into graduate school, how to find and prepare for a medical internship, thoughts on teletherapy from a student's perspective, and lots more. Get ready for some real conversations with SLP students who are at the very beginning of their careers. Welcome to this Missing Link episode, and I am here with Dr. Katie Strong, and I'm so excited she's here because if you find her on the internet, she's just in some really key, neat stories with some really neat projects. So welcome, Dr. Strong. Thanks, Maddie. We are so glad you're here. You are my first professor that I've interviewed on this podcast. I'm excited to be here. It's an honor. Tell us your story of origin. Why did you become a speech pathologist? Well, I certainly didn't actually start out wanting to be a speech-language pathologist in my early life. My bachelor's degree is in psychology from Washington State University, and I really wanted to be a career counselor at the college level. So during my senior year, I was working at, I did an internship and I was working at a career fair and I was right next to a speech pathology and audiology booth. And we got to talking, you know, it was downtime. So we were chatting back and forth um, at, you know, to learn about each other's areas. And I, the more I heard, the more I fell in love with the field. But then I heard I needed a second bachelor's degree to pursue my master's, and it was my senior year. And so I took a couple of courses my, my final semester, but then I just kind of tucked that thought away and um, moved on to graduate school. My husband and I actually um, went off to um, Kansas State University, and I enrolled in a college student personnel administration program. Both my husband and I were in the same program, and Again, remember, I wanted to be a career counselor. So I met with our advisor um, individually. Philip and I had the same advisor. But um, as I was talking with the advisor, I just really didn't click with the content. Um, So I did some soul searching and reached out to the Speech Path program at K-State and again fell in love. Um, This was a number of years ago, Maddie, so I actually was admitted to the program but on probationary status because I didn't have all the prerequisites. Um, But once I made the decision, there was no turning back. Um, yeah, I, I love our field and, you know, it incorporates so much behavior modification and psychology, but it's got such a tangible outcome. Um, and it's also a really marketable gr- degree. So my takeaway for your listeners is that it's okay not to have your life mapped out for you. And I really listened to my gut and found um, that when I did, I have this fabulous career that really was well suited to me. Excellent. And it does it doesn't require, well, the smart ones of us do follow our gut and not follow just a path that's laid out, but really find something that we feel passionate about. Yeah. It doesn't always feel great in the moment when that's happening, but it, it definitely pays off down the road. 
Well, I was like you. I went back. I was a technical writer uh, for IBM. And then I decided to go back and get my master's in speech pathology and best choice I ever made. Mm -hmm. But I love these stories of origins because we approach our fields when we are full of passion and hopes and dreams. And sometimes we lose some of that when the reality of, of productivity and, and contracts and difficult, challenging cases come in. And so I like to be able to step back and say, this is why we're doing what we're doing and, and help shine that light throughout our careers. You went from probationary status to PhD. Tell us about that journey. <laughs> oh, well, um, I never really dreamed about being a faculty member, but I did have a dream of getting a PhD. And I'd had that since I was an undergraduate. I think maybe back in the day, I really wanted to be a neuropsychologist, um, but never really understood what that meant or, you know, really what I was going to do with it um, early in my life. Um, but um, I didn't really set out to become a professor. I actually worked clinically for almost 20 years before going back to get my doctorate. And without getting too complicated into my life story, um, I loved clinical work. But I also loved supporting new clinicians. So mm -hmm. I began mentoring clinical fellows and graduate interns really early in my career. And um, then I started working for a university. I taught a course, and then I taught two courses, and then I provided some clinical supervision. And before I knew it, I was working at the university full-time, overseeing a SLP master's program and a university clinic, but I kind of maxed out on what I could do at the university level with my master's degree. Um, so one of my mentors, Sandy Glista, who is um, from Western Michigan University, encouraged me to apply for ASHA's leadership development program. So in 2006, I was accepted to the leadership development program and there I met a number of newer PhD level faculty who were also assistant professors and they encouraged me to go back to school. So Maddie, in my mid forties, I did just that. I was accepted to Western Michigan University's interdisciplinary health sciences program. So I wanna be clear that I didn't go back to speech pathology. I, I still am a speech language pathologist but I purposefully chose a broader area. Um, and it fit well with me as a returning student. Their program was made for students who have some related work experience and they really value that in their students. So I kept working full time at my university job and also went to school full time. Um, it was a lot to manage, but I usually am up for that type of challenge. Um, and I really loved learning with and from other disciplines. So I had PTs, social workers, nurses, blind and low vision studies, lots of different perspectives that I was in the classroom with. So once I finished up my degree, I decided that I needed to move to a different university to grow and really become the person and professional that I wanted to be. So I joined the faculty at Central Michigan University five years ago and um, just haven't had one regret since. It's been a really great ride. That's a great story. I like how focused and purposeful you've been with where you've gone, what you've wanted to do. It's, yeah, it's, um, it's been an honor. But as I said earlier, 
it doesn't always seem so clear when you're in the moment. So, and I think that's really, you know, important takeaway for your listeners who are just beginning their academic careers or their clinical careers that you don't have to have it all figured out right away. But then follow like what you did, reach out to a community. You were with the ASHA Leadership Program. Yes. A lot of membership um, sites popping up nowadays. I've started one. And there's a lot of things that are going on in chit-chat. So finding people who are where you're at in the stage of the journey and continuing cohorts on beyond graduate school. Yeah, it's so important. I think, you know, I still am in touch with my, um, I have a writing group through my PhD program that we get together and, you know, write together and that, you know, leadership program really um, gave me, you know, I think one of the things that those programs do is when you set aside dedicated time to think about what you want to do with your life and who you are, that is powerful Mm -hmm. stuff. And then it gives you really some ideas to that are more concrete that you can move forward with. So there's a little tip right there, setting aside time to focus on where and what you want to do. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Number two is finding a community. So tell us about, we're going to, I gave you a list of interviewing questions before we started. We're going to jump down to the bottom because it just is natural for us. You have done so many things with um, the Strong Story Lab and my story project. Um, You're very active in the aphasia community and you're you're just doing what you want to do with the the population that you want to do it with. Tell us more about your projects. Yeah, so that's, I think, just been one of the amazing things about reinventing myself (laughs) through my PhD is that I get to do lots of things that I really want to do and that I'm passionate about. Um, And so, um, you know, my work in... um, storytelling and um, supporting individuals with aphasia and being able to tell their stories is really kind of at the heart of my um, my lab work. Um, I think as clinicians, we don't always recognize the power of what story really is. As, as speech-language pathologists, we think a lot about story as product. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, it should be organized. It you know, should have different components to it. And, um, and that's important. Um, but I'm really um, interested in studying story as a process. Um, And so, you know, stories are powerful vehicles for how we make meaning out of things that happen to us in our lives. And um, stories require this important tool called language, right? (laughs) And people with aphasia have a damaged tool. They have, you know, a language issue that they're not always able to navigate telling and retelling stories. And when something important to us happens, whether that's an exciting life event or a tragic life life event, like having a stroke and having aphasia, how we process what happens to ourselves and how we make meaning out of that is through story. And so I was inspired by um, a former client named Nikki and her clinician named Chris. And your um, 
your listeners can maybe read a little bit more about Nikki and Chris or hear more about them. I've got some links that you can put in the show notes about that. But what I saw was with Nikki and Chris was this beautiful relationship that they had developed and that Nikki was able to, through Chris's support, tell and retell her story of who she was before her stroke, who she was with her stroke and aphasia, and um, some ideas about what she had in her future. And that each time Nikki told and retold her stories, she changed a bit and became more confident and brighter. And so my research line is really about exploring and creating techniques or protocols that we clinicians can partner with our clients with aphasia who are interested. This isn't for everybody, you know, you have to be interested in exploring your life story, but, uh, you know, a, a framework for clinicians to be able to, um, to be able to do this, this partnership with their clients and maybe help them move forward and target beyond just fixing the language impairment, but helping them to adjust to who they are with, um, with life and aphasia. Um, one of the exciting things that's happened recently in, um, in the world of storytelling and, um, <laughs> and aphasia is that um, Caroline Baker and her colleagues recently published an article um, that identified story work, life story work, as a level one intervention in a stepped care model to address depression in individuals with aphasia. Oh, very valuable. That's a big deal, right? So that, you know, thinking about our work as clinicians, that words are more powerful than just, um, you know, the, the saying them, that they really can contribute to how we view ourselves as people and that we can help someone improve their quality of life. Um, by supporting them negotiating um, their stories. And giving voice to their stories to be able to say what's on their heart. Exactly. And so I think, you know, the important part of this is that the stories are important, you Mm -hmm. know, but but it's not so much about the product of the story. Mm -hmm. It's about the process, the journey. And that's where, you know, having a very relationship-centered experience with the clinician and the storyteller with aphasia, um, you know, is is really important. Because we all know, we've we've all told stories before where um, the audience matters. The audience may be reacted in a negative way to what we said so we don't tell that again or we tell it in a different way or someone reacted in a very positive way to us and we would continue to share that or someone tells us oh you know what I don't I think what do you think about thinking about it this way and then you might tell it in a different way um, in the future and so that's really what my work is about is bringing in our expertise as um, you know, communication experts and communication ramps and being able to support someone with aphasia, but really helping them to be able to navigate um, stories about, about who they are with the intent that maybe it might help them discover who they are post-stroke and aphasia. Sounds very transformational. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and it's not just transformational for the storyteller, 
but it's also transformational for the clinician. And so that's the beautiful work. You know, you have to be willing to go off road a little bit with your clients. You might be talking about things that you wouldn't traditionally be talking about in therapy sessions or, you know, those sorts of things. But I think, you know, the the beauty of it is there's this reciprocity that is shared um, and that it wouldn't be the same story if if there were different partners or different players. Right. My students will ask me sometimes, how, how do I become a successful speech pathologist? And it's not necessarily, I can teach a student all the skills she or he would need, or at least launch them on their way to learning their skills. But it's that ability to connect, build rapport, be genuine, transparent, authentic, and real to meet that patient or client at where they're at and then and journey with them together. Absolutely. And I did, yeah, I did. It just comes back to, you know, Linda Worrell talks a lot about relationship centered care and that really is where it it's all at and it all, it all develops from, from there. I wanted to talk a little bit though about lab and yep. having students be a part of lab because that's really honestly one of my favorite parts of being a professor is um, being able to have students join our lab community. Um, and when students are in a lab environment, um, well, in I'll speak for my lab, but uh, I get a chance to interact with them in a different way than I would in class or in clinic. So we work collaboratively on um, analysis of data from projects. We read and discuss journal articles and really get to explore aphasia in a different way than we would um, if we weren't in that lab community. Currently, we've got um, some projects that we're going on. We're wrapping up some data analysis for an interdisciplinary songwriting project that we did with music therapy where we co-constructed three songs. Song one is a song about my life before stroke and aphasia. Song two, a story about my stroke and aphasia. And song three, a song, a song for the future. Um, but what I hear students in my lab say to me is that um, they really get a chance to talk about <laughs> things that are related to the field in a way that's different sometimes than in a larger classroom or in a clinic situation. So we um, might um, read an article and then um, chat about it, or we might um, learn about a different qualitative research um, experience. And, um, you know, I think that... Um, Students are always looking for things they can do to add to their graduate application, right? Mm -hmm. what, can, what can I do to add to my graduate application? And, um, you know, I think you have to be authentic in wanting to um, be a part of a lab, but I think a lab is a really great way to um, add something that has academic rigor to your um, experience list. It gives you something really great to talk about in your personal essay or letter of intent. And it also allows you to get a chance to know a faculty member in a different way, but they might actually be a really great source of writing a, a very unique letter to support you in your graduate journey because you've had these different experiences together. That's a student's differential value. Mm -hmm. That's what's 
setting them apart. So now you are referring to the lab and you're talking about the story lab. I am. Yep. Mm -hmm. And is that for you and your students only? Is this something that people can look at and join? Well, um, yeah, that's a great question. So we just launched a website um, that um, your listeners can take a look at and check us out a little bit more at um, strongstorylab.com. I think, you know, I've always had it just for students um, at CMU. Certainly this virtual world of COVID has opened up lots of different doors. There might be something about like participating in an IRB related project that we might have to jump through some hurdles. But if someone was really interested in learning more about storytelling, I'd be, I'd be more than happy to, um, to have you join us. So, or at least reach out for a conversation. So yeah, that's neat. You can open it up. Absolutely. I'm all about creating opportunities for students and working, you know, together. Yep. When I think, you know, students, um, I think, well, listening to podcasts like this or just, you, you know, we you have to know where to look for opportunities. But I think once you start to um, to find them, then other opportunities open up beyond them. So I think it's really great that you you have this podcast for students to be able to hear more about all sorts of different kinds of things. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's a perfect segue to the listeners to say if you have anything you want me to develop a podcast on. Any speakers, anything I can do, let me know and we will create a podcast. It is so much fun sitting and talking with people about something that we are both passionate about. I don't think I've had a bad podcast interview yet. It's, um, it's interesting. It's a lot of fun. I interview for a podcast also, and mm-hmm. I always just feel like I get so much out of each interaction that you really learn something about each guest and um, be able to take something away to make it your own. So taking off the story lab hat and putting on your professor hat, um, what does your your graduate program look for in applications for the student who might want to go to your program or another program? Of course. Well, I'm so glad that you asked. Um, And, you know, to be clear, each program really, you know, looks for different traits in applicants. Um, But um, I do think that, you know, broadly speaking, um, what programs are looking for and what students are looking for is the right fit, right? Is, you know, who, which students fit which program and, and why. Um, but I think that, you know, going back to what you mentioned earlier about like being authentic, <laughs> um, I think that that really is true to um, graduate applications too. And that apl- applicants really need to be, um, you know, have a genuine authentic interest in the field and be able to share some of their experiences that really are unique to their own path in their undergraduate career. So, you know, it's okay if you had a difficult start to your undergrad career or a semester that was difficult or maybe a course that isn't representative of your best work. Um, You know, we, of course, applicants need to meet minimum GPA requirements, but it's also okay to share show that you're human. And this might actually give you some talking points about um, how you learned from those experiences in your personal essays or letters of intent. 
Um, if I could, Maddie, I'd like to talk a little bit more about letters of intent. Um, sure. Between my work here and at my former institution, I've been on an admissions committee for um, a a decade and a half or so. So I've read a lot of student applications and um, I just wanna talk a little bit about letters of intent because I think this is one aspect of an application that's really all under the student's control at that moment in time. You know, the GPA or the GRE, those are, you know, things that are, you've done, they're in your past and your letters of recommendation, sure you can ask invite who you want to, to write those letters, but you're not writing that. Um, and when you get to the point of applying to grad school, you've really already put in all of your volunteer work or your work experience. And so the letter of intent really is an important or, per, you know, personal essay, whatever you're calling it, is an important aspect of um, this. And so one, one thing to keep in mind is that it's essentially a writing sample. So you want to make sure that, you know, as a student, that you are really putting your best work forward um, in that, um, you know, it's not just what you're saying, it's how you're saying it also. Um, but I also feel like um, it's a time to share your views and opinions um, and that it's where you gather all of those other aspects of your application and you put your own spin on how you want the reviewer to think of you as an applicant. So you only get really one chance to, you know, make an impression like this. And I think what I see students doing a lot is they write about how excited they are to become a speech language pathologist. And while this is great, um, and that's your final goal. And it's sure important to show enthusiasm for the field, but you don't want to take a lot of space up in your essay talking about how excited you are to become an SLP because you're missing an important step. And that step is you're not applying to become a speech language pathologist. You are applying for a seat in a rigorous graduate program to study speech language pathology. So your letter of intent really should be more about showcasing your academic experiences and how they relate to your interest in the field. So don't get me wrong, having interest in the field and being a great SLP is important, but that's not always what you wanna just, you know, make your essay about. So your essay should showcase the skills that you have that make you an excellent student and talk about how you apply critical thinking to your courses or how your volunteer experiences might help you better apply these real world experiences to theory. You know, don't let the reviewer make that link you you know you as the applicant should should make that link and here also is where is a place where if you have something on your transcript that you feel like isn't really reflective of your own personal true potential you know talk about it you don't have to have it take up your entire essay but acknowledge what went on and more importantly how now you have a better lens, better skills, better tools to be able to approach um, that situation in the future. So, you know, I think 
you have to be authentic in the letter. Um, but you also have to remember that the first time you write this, it's not going to be your final draft, right? So I, I don't know about you, Maddie, but I hear students like, oh, I'm going to write my my letter of intent. Oh, I need to write my letter of intent. Oh, I have to do that. It's on this list, this to-do list that you keep mm-hmm. like changing it from uh, it's on today, it's on tomorrow, it's on next week. And because you think that it has to be perfect the first time you write it. And so I want to just have your listeners acknowledge that the first time you write it, it's not going to be good. And right. that's, and that's okay. You know, um, I don't know if if you've read it, but one of my favorite books um, is by um, an author, Anne Lamont, called Bird by Bird. And I won't spoil what the title means for your readers, but it's a book on fiction writing. But um, I know that book. Okay. Yes. It does. It, it doesn't have a red cover. It does. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. So you so you might know the chapter that I'm going to talk about. <laughs> That's and, a, a good book for. Yep. For yep. So there's a chapter called, I'm going to use a different word, called the crappy rough draft. And she actually uses a different description. But at any rate, it talks about how difficult it is to write a perfect paper. Nobody writes a perfect paper. So she suggests that you write a crappy rough draft. Mm -hmm. Because if you set the bar low enough, anybody can write a bad draft. And then once you get something on paper, then you can rewrite it and formulate it into the product that you really want it to be. So take the pressure off yourself, guys, and just start writing something. Well, we're coming up, we're in our semester now where, um, you know, students are okay now, you know, here's when your semester summaries are due by. In our first years, they're like, okay, I'll have it done. And I'm like, no, this is just your first draft. Expect to go through three or four. They're like, exactly. And I said, this is your learning. Don't just take the pressure off yourself. Just expect to turn the first draft in. This is the, here's an example. Here's what we're looking for. And then we'll just, this is a skill you're, you're learning. I agree. I agree. And, you know, my last bit of advice on, I guess, what graduate schools are looking for really though, is that as you, once you get your, your draft into a place where you're ready for feedback, have somebody read it that you know is going to give you constructive feedback on the essay and then act on it. So this sometimes means that our best support systems like moms, dads, grandmas, other family members might not be our best sources to give us feedback because they are so impressed with your accomplishments and rightfully so, but they might not be able to really give you constructive feedback. So ask somebody who's going to say, yes, I'll read it. I loved it. And here's how you can make it better. Or, oh, wait, I read this, but you didn't say anything about this experience that you did. Why don't you have that in there? So you really want to, you know, have somebody um, read your letter, your essay, and give you some constructive feedback um, on it. So, um, you know, to me, graduate school, applying to graduate school is stressful. And I always liken it to like, 
riding a roller coaster. You know, there's lots of anticipation. It's exciting. Then you're really nervous and you're scared and you're screaming. Then you come down the hill and it was fun. It wasn't so bad, but then the next hill comes up. And so I just, I just want your, your listeners to know that if you're feeling stressed about graduate school, it's okay. Um, that that's, kind of part of the process, but mm-hmm. reach reach out to people and and learn how to navigate it um, because it, you know, it is it is manageable stress, but it can be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. You know, excellent, excellent words of advice. What words of advice do you have for the students who is just starting graduate school from the very beginning? Yeah, um, my biggest advice is to be open to learning and more importantly, open to feedback, both giving it and receiving it. Um, That means both positive feedback, accepting compliments, which some of us aren't all that great at doing, um, and also constructive feedback meant to support growth and development. You know, if you can get to a place where you don't see constructive feedback as a personal attack, but rather a way to grow, then that is a gift. Um, You know, one of my favorite, and I think students who are admitted to graduate programs are high performers and they're used to getting feedback that is great job, nice work, you know. And so the thing is, when you get into grad school, you have all of the high performers together. And now we're starting to talk about not so much what grade did you get, that doesn't matter anymore. It's what skills can you implement to help this client improve their life? And so, you know, being open to constructive feedback and not taking it as that professor didn't like me because she's telling me this, or, you know, I I have to write my draft six more times because I didn't get it right. You know, that's, um, that's why you're, (laughs) that's why you're working so hard to get into grad school is to, is to have somebody pay that close attention to you to be able to support you in your growth. So one of my favorite books, and we actually require this for our incoming graduate students to read is um, by Stone and Heen called Thanks for the Feedback. And um, it's a pop psychology book, so it's not about speech pathology by any means, but it talks about accepting feedback, and it's really a great read. Um, and I think, you know, we all can work on accepting and, and giving feedback, but I think it's part of our um, our personas as professionals that if we're more likely to be able to do that in a graceful way, that we're really going to reap the benefits and um, and really develop beautiful skills. Developing that mindset for the very start. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you're open to growing, learning, and becoming the best that you can be because a good supervisor will give you that specific feedback and will watch. Yeah. And sometimes what happens too is a good supervisor will give you that feedback. And if you perform on it, then they're going to give you even more feedback. Mm -hmm. And sometimes Mm -hmm. students perceive that as like, I just can't ever please her when really it's, oh my gosh, look how far we can 
can get you to go. And so it's just, you know, being open though and having a conversation with your supervisor about how you're feeling um, and so that you can get to the point where you're really having the same conversation that you're not, you're not taking something in a way that, that it wasn't intended to be delivered. Because you can't fake your way through graduate school. Nope. 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 You cannot. Um, what about words of wisdom for the student just finishing his or her degree? Yeah, you know, our field places such um, emphasis on this clinical fellow experience. And so my advice is to take that to heart. Um, and the clinical fellow experience is important. You only get one. And to me, it's more important who is providing your clinical mentorship over where you are working. Um, So don't get me wrong. You have to love what you're doing and where you're doing it. But what you really want is a strong, supportive mentor who will develop yourself as a clinician and a person. Well said. Very well said. So in our remaining time we have left, I have two questions for you. I would like you to share a networking story with us. Why we've just been talking a lot on, on my membership site about why networking is so important and the students are like, well, I, yeah, I can go on and on, but I want you to talk and tell me your experiences with it and then share how you and I kind of go way back. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. So, well, I think, you know, my networking advice is to don't be afraid to put yourself out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that sounds a little cliche, but I think it really is important. Um, introduce yourself to faculty members. Visit their office hours just to chat. Um, reach out to a, a colleague or, you know, it, and it might seem scary at first, but um, faculty love to talk to students and to get to know them. So if you're early in your student life, um, you know, or, or your graduate um, experience, you know, get get to know your faculty. Also, though, get involved. Um, join NISLA or some other student organization, your state association. Go to continuing education experiences because um, if you can get involved. And not just go, but have a conversation with someone. You know, professional networking is all about relationships. So I hate to bring it back to that relationship-centeredness again, but it really is back to that again. And relationships begin by getting to know one another. And so, you know, taking time to, um, even if you feel that you're introverted, I am an introvert at heart, um, but professionally, I have learned how to um, put myself out there a little bit more and to get to know other people. And it gets easier as time um, as time moves on. And, and I'm still an introvert. Give me a book and a, and a uh, quiet space and I am regenerated. But I, you know, certainly um, love being able to network with individuals. And, you know, I guess the story that I'd like to tell Maddie is when you reached out to me to um, invite me as a guest on your podcast, um, you um, noticed that I had a degree from Washington State University, um, which you also have a degree from Washington State University. And so we were able to connect on an alma mater um, level. Um, And so, you know, there's lots of different ways I think that we we can network professionally. 
And it's amazing how far you can go back networking. Like Steve Saunders was my, um, one of my internship supervisors at Washington State. Mm-hmm. And I reached back out to him and he's like, yeah, we'd love to connect. I mean, my word, how many years ago was that? A little while for me. Yeah, so exactly. Networking is important. It is. I agree. And I love that, though, that, you know, um, networking, looking forward, but also cultivating those relationships that you've had in your past, because you just never know um, when you're going to, um, you know, benefit from them or or what you're going to get out of that that experience. Well, and I love your choice of words with um, using cultivating, because networking is a it's a process that needs to be tended to. Mm -hmm. It really is. And it's a very symbiotic relationship and can be very beneficial for all parties involved. Exactly. Exactly. So in the two minutes we have left or three, what is, can you share a final story with us that really was an aha moment for you where you're like, yes, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Well, I hope I can deliver on that. Um, so I, I chose a story that really, um, highlights an impact. You asked me about thinking about highlighting an impact with a student or a client, and I decided Mm -hmm. to choose one that might have both. Um, and so I'd like to talk about simulation, um, as I think, um, that story impacts both students and clients. And, um, I've been using class simulations in my classes for the past seven or eight years using cases that were developed by others. Um, But I was interested in having my own cases that um, addressed clinical knowledge and skills in life participation approach to aphasia. And so um, I partnered with two of my clients to create two different simu cases for um, working with individuals to provide treatment for chronic aphasia. And um, I want to just say this, and I, I chose this story because in the in our virtual world right now, I think a lot of students are feeling like they're they're using a lot of simulations and they're feeling like maybe it's not the same or I'm feeling like it's a substandard of working with um, an actual client. And let me put it this way, it's not the same as working with a client, but I wanted to say that a lot of the, the simulations that are developed right now are real clients and they are people that, um, you know, have challenges and needs. And so I wanted to say also that, you know, simulate doing a simulation as a student isn't just for a student to hang out in front of a computer and do cases. You know, they're thoughtful in their design and incorporate different principles of deliberate practice in a safe environment. So you can make mistakes with a simulated client in ways that you might not be able to make without any repercussions with a, with a client that is, um, that is a real person. Um, and so um, I developed two different cases. I asked two of my clients to partner with me. Um, Dan and Dawn um, are both the clients. I, those, I, Debrief those all the time, those two gentlemen. <laughs> In fact, we uh, just this morning, myself and another clinical supervisor met with our um, 
course advisor and we laid out the LPAA and the AFROM. And so we're now integrating her course with the SIMU case. Love it. Love it. I know those gentlemen well. I love it. Well, and so if your listeners are going to be using SimuCase or have used them, maybe maybe they would know them too. But I invited both of those individuals to partner with me because they each had therapy goals that were related to, I just thought it would help them to take their, their being able to meet their goals to a level that was beyond just working with them in the, in, in the, in the treatment room. So, um, if you don't know them, um, each of them have chronic aphasia. Dan is a former public school teacher. So getting him back in the classroom post-retirement with aphasia was really meaningful for him. Mm -hmm. And Don's therapy goals are all about advocacy. So him being able to to train students about aphasia just were so in line with his goals. And so I share this story with you is because I, I want to highlight that I just feel so fortunate to be able to align my therapy into meaningful goals, into teaching um, techniques and um I have to tell you, Maddie, the response to the cases has been amazing. These, these cases have been like hotcakes and Dan, Dan and Don are superstar status. They are. They are rock stars for sure. They love it. I when I send them <laughs> updates on how many um, students have viewed their cases, and I haven't looked. I haven't asked in a while. But back in September of 2020, each case had over 11,000 submissions. Wow. Um, and that doesn't mean 11,000 students, but 11,000 times someone had submitted their case. And, um, you know, I feel like um, their cases hit SIMU case at a time right after or right before COVID hit. And so it was like this virtual window opened and some programs or faculty members who didn't think simulation was for them or they weren't interested in that were kind of forced into using simulation because we couldn't do things the way that we had always done in the clinic. And um, I just um, I just am tickled at, at how we're, we're training students, we're um, allowing Don to be able to advocate for his aphasia. Dan and Cheryl, his wife, are back in the classroom with, you know, over 11,000 different submissions. And so I also want to say this, that we've been invited, Dan and Don have been invited to University of Montana and University of Minnesota Mankato to participate in classroom briefs virtually. And so that also has been um, pretty cool for them too. So it makes me smile thinking that there are classrooms together teaching students about how to partner with aphasia therapy. And I keep in contact with both of these guys and they continue to grow and flourish. And it's really a win-win situation. We have Dan on, uh, we will be, I will be debriefing him with a class on December 7th at, don't remember the time, I want to say 11. Yes, they are rock stars. Yes. <laughs> this is where networking comes in. Because when you say Mankato, I'm thinking, ding, ding, ding. I'll see if I can't jump on that train as well. And how affirmative for those gentlemen and you and we here were like, uh, send me Casey, you know, but 
wow, we've really looked at the benefits of it and the charting and the discipline of, of problem solving your way through. And here is, here is why you, you know, interview these um, um, colleagues, uh, not colleagues, but, um, you know, how you do your intake and what's yeah. your hypothesis. And now here's your assessment and here's how it all rolls out. Absolutely. And so I just, I thought, you know, um, I've, I've used SimuCase in my classroom mm, for a number it. of years, but I, I wanted my own cases. And yes. I, and so, um, you know, I'm really tickled with how they turned out and that, um, that we have some superstar status among us with, um, with Dan and Don, cause that's just, um, it's well, pretty, pretty cool. You as well. You are an inspiration to all who are listening to this podcast, I am sure, because I am excited. So I know our other listeners are as well. So thank you very much for taking the time to come on today. Thanks, Maddie. Today's conversation has created some aha moments for you and motivated you to become a better SLP, continuing to connect some of those missing links between what you know and how to use that knowledge. Thank you for downloading the missing link for SLP's podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, I'd love you to subscribe, rate it, and leave a short review. Also, please share an episode with a friend. Together, we can raise awareness and help more SLPs find and connect those missing links and get the information needed to help them feel confident in their patient care every step of the way. Follow me on Instagram and join the Fresh SLP community on Facebook. Show notes are always available, so come learn more at freshslp.com. Let's make those connections. You got this.